You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Our lessons from Tom Vanderbilt's book, You May Also Like, uh, it brought up an, an interesting, um, I think, problem a lot of us have when we are dealing with... Um, with likes or dislikes, one of my beliefs is just because you have a preference, right, doesn't mean that it it has to be that way. And I learned this with my kids, um, that they can have a preference for what they want, but it doesn't mean we always choose that preference. Everyone can have likes or dislikes, and when it comes down to it, we, we need to figure out how to maybe try new things. Um, maybe that won't work for us today. My wife and I have learned a crazy little secret with our own kids that sometimes it's better to not tell them what we're doing. Because the minute we make an announcement about what we're doing, everyone's going to have an opinion. And with six kids and one of them married with a husband and a grandchild, we don't have time, I guess, to make it perfect for everyone. So we always try to just instill the idea that let's just try it, right? We can try it. If you don't like it, we don't have to like it. If you push too hard on people to try stuff, a lot of times you'll just create an immediate rebellion. If you if you don't push hard on people to try stuff, then they're never going to learn what else is out there in the world. So there's a fine balance, isn't there? And any parent knows there's a fine balance to getting their child to do something, to try something but also do it in a way that we don't want to destroy the game. It's the balance of, uh, you know, the goose and the golden egg, Aesop's fable, that y- you want to keep getting results in life, but you've got to do it without destroying your ability to get results tomorrow. Any parent can get something to happen today. I can get my kids to eat their vegetables. But if I get, it, get them to eat their vegetables in a way that uh, actually hinders my ability to do it next time, then I'm becoming less and less effective. Our goal is to be able to be effective long-term, to be able to get results today and be able to uh, get them again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And uh, Tom's work uh, in the example he was giving about, uh, you know, his getting his father to try a new drink or a new beer or a beverage it's uh, it's probably very appropriate for all of us to learn. If we want to get people to try new things, then you probably need to model it. That hey, this this does this does well for for you. They they can see that it it offers you an opportunity, and maybe start where the people are. It doesn't mean that they even want to change their beverage choice, but you can at least offer it. And if you're offering just a taste of something else, you might want to take it, folks. I mean, I know we all kind of fall into our entrenched stubbornness at times, but if somebody offers you a chance to try something different, try it. And know that there's nothing lost here. Just try stuff. Try it. We don't need to revert back to the, you know, the five-year-old that's not going to open his mouth to try anything new. When you're, you know, when you're 45, you can just choose to 
try some new things. And amazingly, my trying and, and tasting of sushi 10 years ago changed my life. Thank you. Thank you. Changed my life, folks. But for 35 years, I had said, nah, I don't eat raw fish. That's just horrible. It's choice, folks. Don't force choice. Choice is inevitable. Just create a great space where it's worth trying. And it's easy to try. And it's easy to fail as well. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We just learned about our uh, physical health, right? You got you to gotta lose the soda. And I'm going to say, <laughs> just for my own sake... You got to lose the sugary soda, the 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 cancerous uh, acidic soda without sugar. Totally fine. No, it's not more water, folks. Now we tell our kids all of these things, and yet, uh, isn't it hard? Um, we we heard earlier in the show the story about the son who called the police because his dad ran a red light. Mm, thanks, Dad. There's certain things that they see out of you, right? Uh, They see how you handle stuff. They see what you're doing. Your kids are watching you, and they don't really have a shot at a healthy life if you don't provide it. And I'm not here to make you depressed because you're just such a horrible parent because you're not. But they're watching. They are watching. And if we want any hope of being able to lead our families, we we probably need to master ourselves and find one thing, just one thing. And maybe soda is the way to begin. If you know you're a big soda lover, soda drinker, deal with it. Find a way to break the habit. And I wouldn't personally just go diet. I've been diet and that doesn't help. I find that about three times a year I quit soda for about a month and then I go out with a bunch of friends and I watch them drink soda and I'm like, oh, you guys are lucky. Can I just smell your drink? It's, I feel like I'm an alcoholic and I never had alcohol. So how do we break a habit? How do we break it? And But also one of the things I'd think about is – Instead of building the story and the belief that habits are hard to break, let's find a better reason to have the habit. Why Why would it be valuable for you to get rid of the soda? Well, my kids would be healthier. We would save money. Yeah, what else? We've got to figure out a way deep, deep down to drive this meaning much deeper than having it be about soda. And you don't even wa- – you got to be careful. You don't want your identity to be, well, I don't drink soda. I've never had sugar on my lips for the last six years. <laughs> I, it drives me crazy when we become so adamant about one thing and we've created our entire identity by not doing something. You also need to have your identity being something you do do, something that you are. Right? It's, I guess, easier to say what you're not, but sometimes we need to know what you are. So it's not just about a soda war. It's not just about, I'm a lazy bum and I can't get off of sugar. You, you also have to find what you are. And as soon as you can connect to that deeper meaning in your life and the deeper purpose of what you're about, you'll see that it's not about soda. I have a belief 
that if we could connect to our deepest, most spiritual self, we wouldn't drink soda, right? We also probably wouldn't make fun of people and we wouldn't yell and we wouldn't hold grudges because there's a deeper, better side of all of us. And uh, But our body is constantly battling that. So if we want to fix it, you don't necessarily have to just bare knuckle it and hunker down and get rid of everything in life that tastes good. You might also just want to figure out a deeper purpose for who you are. And again, you don't also have to go sit on a mountain like a monk and meditate. What it might simply mean is I got to just figure out why health is so important to me. And it might simply be because it gives me a body that works, and when my body works, it makes this life a little easier to live. It gives me a chance to live longer so I can learn more. If I can figure out why I'm even on this big ball of mud, this planet, then I want to be here to, to learn. I think I'm here to learn. And if I'm slowly burning the candle at both ends of my life, then my learning is going to be shortchanged. And shortchange simply because I like sugar. I again, I don't think I don't think your God is up there sitting like I cannot believe he's drinking another super big gulp. But your conscience might be telling you something, and it might be telling you something because you know something about you. You know that you're not drinking enough, or you're not eating enough vegetables, or you're not being the person you need to be, and you can just, I guess, go medicate it by, you know, escaping and getting away from it. Or you could just dig a little deeper and find some other way to connect to a deeper reason why you want to do, why you want to get healthier. It's, if it's just about getting in the bathing suit, I promise it won't work. You might get in the bathing suit, but, you know, it might break or it might not last very long. There's always the deeper reason. And so get out of your body Get out of your mind that kind of justifies everything we do. And let's get down to our spirit, that uh, deeper inner connected being that you are, and see what it's telling you. It's it's still telling you no matter what, you're loved, you're a great person, you're wonderful, even if you're drinking, you know, cola. And it's also telling you, you can stop. You can moderate it. You could get in charge of it and lead it a little bit more. Everyone's going to have a trial. Everyone's going to have a challenge. Everyone. If your challenge are sugary drinks, okay. But no, that's not the real challenge. The real challenge is becoming the best you you can become. And you're not bad because you do it. You just you need to figure it out. No matter what the addiction or no matter what the, uh, the craving is, right? Interesting stuff, folks. That's the Coach's Corner. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Do any of these stories sound familiar? eBay, uh, 145 million people whose information had been hacked uh, on eBay. MySpace, 164 million people. 10 million people from Sony. Yahoo, five, I think, uh, five or 50 million people. Woo! 
Well, in 2008, Cybersecurity Awareness Week, also called Seesaw, was founded with the goal to draw engineering students into cybersecurity. This year, it's the 13th annual conference with over 20,000 students from around the world who will participate in Seesaw and is the largest student-ran cybersecurity event in the world. The cybersecurity industry will need about 1.5 million workers that, um, uh, that need to be qualified for the jobs by the year 2020. And the problem is... They don't necessarily have that many coming down the line. So joining us to talk about the the, the problem of trying to um, teach and instruct the next generation of cybersecurity cyber professionals is the founder of Seesaw and professor of computer science and engineering at New York University, Nasser Memon. Thank you so much for being with us, Professor. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. What a great... Um, Thing I think you've put together here. So, so you have students from all over the world that then gather and they have competitions against each other to to uh, to test each other's skills in cybersecurity. Is that the idea? Yeah, sort of. So, what we do is the competitions are held in like two uh, phases. Uh, the first phase is online, where uh, students from all around the world can easily compete. Uh, there are no geographical boundaries there. Uh, and then what we do is that we pick the top 10 teams in the first phase uh, from North America and bring them to New York for our finals. We pick the top 10 team from India, and we this year we uh, sort of they go to uh, uh, IIT Kanpur, uh, which is the top sort of technical uh, university in India. They go there for the finals, and for the, for the MENA region, the Middle East and North Africa region, they go to NYU Abu Dhabi's uh, campus uh, uh, and for the finals. So, uh, and 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 so, the yeah. So that that's what happens. So then, what happens? Do they as they're as how do they compete? What does a competition look like um, in these different phases? So there are different competitions. One is a capture the flag competition, which they get uh, challenges. Uh, quite often it's an application that might have a vulnerability and they have to uh, find the vulnerability and uh, reach a flag of some sort. Uh, so that's one of the uh, competitions. The, another competition is a high school forensics challenge where they're given uh, a murder mystery and they have to find evidence, find the clues, find out what happened and uh, submit uh, uh, their their results, what what they found. Uh, another competition is uh, uh, Best Research Paper Award. So here they simply present the research they've done in the last 12 months or so uh, to a panel of judges and the judges from industry, and the judges pick the winners. Uh, then there is a Hack the Chip competition, where, which is more hardware-focused, and they are, uh, they are required to uh, submit uh, code or techniques that can uh, find... Uh, embed a vulnerability in, in, in a chip hmm. and, uh, and cause problems. <laughs> now, it's in a way, it, it, it this isn't going away, right? We we hear about the Russian hacks. We hear about the Chinese hacking. We we I'm on a website right now where you can just see hundreds of examples with hundreds of millions up to people whose data and information have been hacked. In the end, are we... I guess this is how you're you're trying to get more and more professionals trained and up to speed in order to to fight against those that are that are trying to do ill. Right. So, 
and it's uh, it's a global problem, right? Right. So, uh, I think uh, it's not technology that's going to solve the cybersecurity problem. We do need technology, of course, uh, but it's also people. Uh, we need uh, talented people who are first uh, building secure systems. So when we build something from scratch, uh, we do it uh, better than what we've been doing so far, understanding the global threats that these systems could face. Uh, then while the systems are deployed and used, we need, cons- uh, again, cybersecurity professionals uh, monitoring it, and uh, and uh, because it's hard to anticipate uh, what uh, an adversary would do, so we we need uh, cybersecurity professionals who are constantly monitoring, auditing, uh, understanding what's going on, so they can uh, find the flaws and and uh, or find the bad guys when they come in before they can do any any damage. Hmm. Uh, so it's a very I, I I believe it's a very people intensive. Uh, uh, process uh, and somehow a lot of our focus has been on creating some magical technology that will protect protect all of us uh, but when a CIO, when a CIO asks me where should we invest in, in security I tell them in people we need uh, highly skilled and well-trained uh, people to uh, make ourselves secure and one of the things I read in your article was about one of the ways to get people up to speed on cyber technology is they have to be hanging out with other people and learning from each other. Right, because cybersecurity is a discipline where there's an adversary involved. Yeah. And it's very hard to anticipate what and what the adversary will do. So it's hard to train them in the classroom for that. Uh, so just like in, in athletics or in, in, uh, in military, uh, the way they train soldiers or uh, the way athletes train is by actually playing against each other, right? Mm. And that's when you start gaining the skills and and uh, gaining the skills that allow you to uh, watch the adversary, anticipate, react. And, and uh, so, so I think games are very important uh, for building cybersecurity skills. Yeah, like I guess that's your point, right? That it takes practice, it takes uh, ingenuity, it takes human-to-human interaction. This isn't just something you're going to install on your system and then lock everything up tight because right. humans can go figure out how to hack that. Right, because, uh, I mean, we, we are very good at building uh, reliable systems. I mean, if you look at the air transportation system, it's amazing uh, the chances of uh, an air uh, uh, you getting hurt in, a, in an accident uh, on an airplane is lower than uh, you slipping in the bathtub and, and uh, falling and, and breaking your leg or something. Mm. So we we know how to build reliable systems, but uh, we still don't know how to build secure systems because it is hard to anticipate what an adversary would do. Right. So if you look at this very same, very reliable uh, transportation system we built, uh, there was a very flimsy door between the passengers and the cockpit that allowed the perpetrators of 9-11 the heinous acts that they did, right? And in hindsight, you say, okay, we need a better fortified door. Uh, In in hindsight, that's obvious, but uh, anticipating that, that up front... Uh, is not that obvious. And then when we fortified the door, then there was a pilot who ran the airplane in, in a, into a mountain. Right. And the passengers couldn't uh, prevent that. So. Yeah. So it's, hum- it's human, and then it's, yeah, and then it's kind of figuring out the next hurdle and then overcoming it. 
And one of the things you point out a lot is the adversarial nature of this battle that it's it really is it's it's strategy and it's it's competition it's war it's a battle it's a battle yeah and uh, one uh, because in, in in society there are always bad actors right? yeah the people who will uh, perform actions for their personal benefit but that harms society at at large and we have ways of dealing with that we have a justice system we have uh, a reputation system. We have uh, morals that teach people how to uh, to, to do the right thing. Uh, but in cyberspace, all those sort of really have not worked. Or mm. It's difficult to make them work. Yeah. So. Are we prepared for the future? Is there um, what? How big of a gap is there between the amount of cybersecurity experts we need and the amount we have? So it's huge. I, I know from uh, personal experience, uh, the the calls I get from CIOs and other hiring managers saying, hey, do you have someone? Uh, we're looking to hire someone in cybersecurity. So, uh, but data says that we would need about one cybersecurity engineer for every 10 uh, IT professionals. So because everybody needs cybersecurity. It's no longer simply the firms that produce that technology, but banks need it, pharmaceutical companies need it. Uh, any, anyone connected to the internet and has a sizable presence needs cybersecurity engineers. Right. And uh, so by that formula, if you need a million and a half in the next uh, five to 10 years, uh, we're probably graduating just a few thousand every year. Right. So, so the gap is, is really large and growing. Well, um, let's do this. Let's take a break and come back. I'd love to have you, Nasir, explain and show us or share with us what what we need, like what makes up a great cybersecurity expert as far as the credentials, the experience. I mean, I'm thinking of my kids, you know, is being a video gamer enough? We'll get to that more uh, on this interesting topic of uh, cybersecurity and our future, folks. Nasir Memon will continue with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer and hopefully uh, more cyber secure. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, cybersecurity is a growing field and soon will dominate the industry. And joining us on the line is Nasir Memon. He is a professor of computer science and engineering at New York University. He also is the founder of Seesaw. Seesaw is Cybersecurity Awareness Week, where he brings in a lot of, uh, of uh, I guess, college-age students, engineering students, and they have a huge annual conference. Over 20,000 students from around the world participate, and then they actually compete against each other and go head-to-head to try to capture the flag and and <laughs> cross-infect each other in a way to uh, to learn how to maintain cybersecurity. Nasir, we appreciate so much you being with us. Thank you for your time. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me. This, um, are we secure? I mean, as I look over this website, just seeing how many times people have been hacked or just, you know, configuration errors inside of the computer, you know, server problems and stolen computers, stolen media. It's, this is, this is something that, uh, I think a lot of us, we know it happens, but it's, it's, I don't feel like we, I sense enough fear from people for what could happen here. So, I mean, we can never be 100% secure, right? There's no such thing as uh, complete security. There's always some risk that we carry. Uh, and the problem is we are we lack an understanding of that uh, risk. Uh, as new technology is created at a phenomenal rate, uh, and, uh, and of course this new technology comes with benefits, it improves our way of life, but it also comes with risks, and we don't understand it. We don't understand the vulnerabilities that exist within it, and uh, I'm, I'm, it's unfortunate that uh, we have not been able to build secure systems mm. so far. And uh, I don't know what will, what will, what needs to happen <laughs> for us to get there. Yeah. One thing I do know is that we we do we do need a lot of very smart people thinking about this problem, and we also need a broad awareness uh, on the part of everybody about the risks that they face. Uh, yeah, I mean we hear it we we hear it in this political cycle a lot. Um, it also seems like a really great job opportunity for a lot of people. Um, so so who would make a great cybersecurity professional? What's their background? What's their education need to be? And, and how do they get involved? So, so I think there's no single description. There are different types of people. Uh, I'll, I'll go through some. Uh, but I think one thing common to them is this notion of a security mindset. So a security mindset is basically this, this ability to look at a system and find the trust relationships. So in a system, we kind of sometimes when we're designing it, we, we end up trusting something. The input or, or a particular person will act in a particular way or something will happen. And, and th- that trust assumptions that we make are precisely the assumptions that the attackers violate mm. when they get in. And that's, those are the flaws in the design. So, for example, and it's, very not, it's not very natural to think of it. So, for example, uh, when you go to a, to a restaurant and you give the car to a valet, you're essentially giving the valet the ability to drive to your home because there's a GPS there with the home button there. Uh, so basically the, the valet can simply take the car and drive to your home. There is a garage door opener there which the valet can use to get into your home and take whatever he or she wants. Hmm. We, but we don't think about it that way. We, we assume we have the assumption that the valet will not do that. Society doesn't work that way. People don't work that way. And everything will be fine. Uh, but when you're talking about large, complicated uh, systems, such trust assumptions are the ones that are difficult to spot mm. uh, and difficult to sort of detect and uh, to, to prevent uh, uh, against, right? So, so you need the security mindset kind of a thing where a person who's constantly thinking about what can go wrong, right? And, uh, and so it sounds like you have to almost be adversarial in a way, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Like, like be willing to... To, to compete, to take people yeah. on. Right. So what if that doesn't happen? Uh, what if I cannot trust the valley? What if I, whatever. So, so you have to keep sort of asking yourself these questions to understand the security mm. of the system. Uh, 
The second kind of person, so the one kind of, so, so that's I think common to everybody. One kind of person you need uh, is someone who understands sort of deep, low-level knowledge about the bits and bytes uh, in a computer system. Uh, typically, we teach people at a very high level uh, and to, to design systems, so to put applications together. But quite often, they're all relying on services which are further down, and, and those uh, we tend to uh, take for granted. But many, many times, the problems are there. So be able, be able to uh, understand at a very low level what's happening uh, in a system uh, is, is important. Uh, I think for that they need curiosity and patience because uh, sometimes when you come up against uh, malware and you want to understand what it does, uh, all you have is what they call a binary dump, a, dump, a sequence of ones and zeros. Mm. And to be able to figure that out and exactly what it's doing and how you could uh, sort of disable it in some sense uh, is, is difficult. So that it needs deep. So there is one type of people who need deep technical knowledge, but then, as I said before, security is not. You cannot get hundred percent security. So you not. You need people who understand what is important to the business. So you need people. You need cybersecurity professionals who understand business, who understand law, who understand policy, and are able to make cybersecurity decisions uh, in the context of these broader themes as well. Uh, as to what is important for your business to protect, uh, what are the laws that employs, what kind of policies you need to put in place uh, to create a safe environment. And so you need people who can uh, understand that. And sometimes you need people who can understand all this along with technology as well. So uh, at NYU, we have students in, of course, computer science and electrical engineering who look at the deep technical stuff. But then you also have students from the Stern Business School, the NYU Law School, mm. the Stanford School of Policy, and we all sit together and discuss problems and they learn from each other because I believe that cybersecurity is more than simply technology. Uh, understanding the other aspects are important as well. Yeah. Is, um, are, are the elementary schools, are our high schools, are they doing a, an effective job of preparing these type of mindsets, these these skill sets uh, to get people into college to do cybersecurity? Uh, uh, well, I wouldn't want to blame them by saying they're not effective, but I think they don't even, they're not aware and they're not even trying. We don't have the support structure in place to enable them to make that happen. Uh, I have been running camps for high school teachers for last few years so they can bring cybersecurity to the classroom. I have been running camps for high school women so they understand uh, cybersecurity, but uh, there needs to be also effort uh, that needs to take place at uh, the middle school level. So the problem is that uh, we're not even teaching computer science in our schools, right? Uh, President Obama has started the initiative Computer Science for All, uh, and even that is, seems to be difficult to implement. Uh, cybersecurity gets a lower priority compared to computer science, and uh, uh, I, I, I don't. I, we're, we're not making good progress. Yeah. Me, yeah. How do we rank as a country in cybersecurity? Are we more secure than other countries? Are we less secure? I think everybody has uh, using the same system. So I think everybody has the same vulnerabilities. It's just that the attractive targets are here, uh, and uh, as they say, they say the the bad guys go where the money is. Right. Uh, so we tend to get at, attacked more. 
Uh, in terms of capabilities, I don't have a, sort of a direct estimate, but I think we should be among the best, right? The, the Americans, the Russians, the Chinese, the, the uh, Israelis, and the United Kingdom, I think these four or five countries are, are better at cybersecurity than, than the others. But then we get attacked a lot because, uh, for various reasons, including, I guess, the fact that this is where the money is. Is we hear a lot about Russia lately, <laughs> and um, and I guess is that just because Russia's uh, hitting these these higher these higher targets, the Clinton Foundation and all of the Clinton emails and stuff, or or are they just more advanced in this, or are the are are the Americans you know equal to the Russians in this? I would think that uh, the Americans would be equal or even better. Uh, I think uh, it's simply, first of all, it's very hard to make attributions, but uh, right. if somebody at the government level is saying it's Russians, then I, I would tend to believe them that uh, because they, they don't say these things casually, I hope. Uh, so if that's the case, then I think it's just a decision someone has made at some point uh, that this should happen, and I don't know who that could be for whatever ideological reasons or political reasons or, or things of that sort. Uh, and also... There is also this issue of uh, the criminal justice system, right? So in the sense that uh, what what kind of criminal justice system is there in Russia and what does it think about mm. crimes that take place in the U.S.? Are uh, Russian actors uh, perpetrating crimes in the U.S. And, and how they go after them? Uh, perhaps the issues there as well that, that lead to, to the problems, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Does um, as just as we wrap up, what do you think we should do, Nasir? As just what can I do to maintain my own cybersecurity, and um, and what can I do to kind of educate my children to be more secure when it comes to you know the possibility of cyber attack? So understand that uh, the information that you are you have uh, in any digital form, uh, you need to be careful about and think about who has it and how can people access it and uh, understand that there is a possibility that it could get stolen and what would you do in that regard. Uh, what you normally do is the same, the general hygiene stuff, right, for health. They say wash your hands, so the same things here. Keep your computers updated. Update every single, sort of, make sure you install your updates as soon as possible. Uh, also, uh, don't go to strange websites and uh, don't open random chat attachments. Mm. And so these are standard things we've been we've been telling people for a yeah. long time. Yeah. But uh, it's it's harder to do. Uh, and uh, but I think over time these things will will improve. And there's certain things that I think it's not just you and me, but it's uh, the, the the companies that are building systems with vulnerabilities in them uh, need to do a better job as well. You bet. You bet. Well, Nasir, thank you so much for your great work and for really your work on the Cyber Security Awareness Week. I think that's a great prog uh, program you've started there, and I wish you the best of luck and all of your students. Man, think about how much you are being protected by some college student that just went and played some of Nasser's games and uh, in having cyber attacks on each other. Really, you're pretty – as I've been looking over the list – it's amazing how few companies really have been attacked. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds that have been attacked with millions and millions of n names lost, except 
there's thousands and thousands of companies that haven't been. So a lot of companies are doing things right. We'll take a break. Stick with us, helping you live a healthier, happier life. We'll be back. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Joining us in the studio today, Julie K. Nelson, also known as the Bomb Mom and the Child Whisperer. You made up those names. I, I didn't No, that's what you said you wanted us to call you. <laughs> no. Call me the Bomb no, Mom. No, I did not. Really? It's the Bomb. It's the Bomb. No, it's true. And you uh, you also are the – you have a website, a spoonfulofparenting.com. Mm-hmm. And two p- books out that are on parenting. You've you've got it all. Mm-hmm. And today, for some reason, you wanted to talk about smells. Yes. Now, when, when I think of parenting and smells, not a good subject. We're going to bring it around. Because, okay, you know, there are a lot of smells and, and a lot of it has to do with evoking memories from our childhood. Yeah. Right. So like if you, Matt, just kind of meditate here for a moment. Oh. Okay. Eyes closed. If you had this smell of homemade bread right now under your nose, what mm. childhood memory would that evoke? What emotion would you feel? Yeah. Just yummy. Mm-hmm. Is that an emotion? Yummy. Well, you know, comfort, right? Mm. Mom loves me. Just going to bed every night with a warm loaf of milk, loaf of bread, and a glass of milk. <laughs> How about um, the smell of popcorn? What does a memory does that evoke? Uh, binging on Netflix. <laughs> How about pine trees? Uh, delivering mail or pine cones at my grandma's house. Oh, as a child. Oh, uh-huh. I used to deliver pine cones to all the neighbors. So what research finds is if you take a whiff of pine cones, it will immediately evoke take me that. Back take to you grandma. back. It's so powerful. It's one of the most powerful sensory uh, cognitive connections. I believe that. Mm-hmm. How about the smell of coffee? What does that do for you? It reminds me of my father mm-hmm. and a Santa Claus that had coffee breath. And I thought, <laughs> good grief. It smells like he just ate a handful of coffee beans. <laughs> you know, yeah. these things are so powerful because they go straight to your neuroreceptors uh-huh. in your brain. Um, and you have a lot of strong reactions to smells, good and bad. Favorite smells, worst smells, right? No. Oh. And of the five senses, smell is the most closely tied to memory and emotion. Really? And that's why the perf- perfume industry, perfumes are so built around connection because they want to evoke this this sense of, um, you See, know. Almost any perfume reminds me of my grandma, my nana. Mm. Because she wore a lot of perfume. Mm-hmm. And they do things that are supposed to smell like your uh, pheromones, you know, like uh-huh. the, you, the sex hormones so that yeah. you're going to be attracted to somebody. But also like you've heard about people who've lost a loved one and then the, the body scent that's left in their clothing, mm. they just can't get rid of that piece they of clothing. They keep smelling They it. keep smelling it to remind them of their loved one. Yeah. It's just such a strong connection. Cool. Um, and on a personal level, I mean, they've done a lot of research on just how people are attracted to each other based on smell. Um, <laughs> that body odor produced by your genes can help subconsciously choose your partners. Kissing is thought that by some scientists to have developed from sniffing that that first kiss being essentially a primal behavior during which we smell and taste our partner decide if they're a match. Yeah. Ew. This could be the chemistry of matching up, of, of finding if your hormones and their hormones are... But that could get a little creepy. Yeah. Interesting, right? Your, your boyfriend's sure weird. He sure sniffs you a lot. <laughs> Yeah. Well, the thing I want to tie to get today is see, here is this happy smell. Look at this. I brought you it. Brought us. I made it this morning. <gasps> smell. Mm. Ooh, they're warm. Yeah. You want to smell those, Jeffrey? Mm-hmm. Those are um, cinnamon rolls. And 
you've given us these before. I have. A long time ago. You know, fact, have you ever gone, back that memory. Have you, are, are, have you ever walked down the mall and smelt Cinnabon? I mean, it's, yes. like you do a, it's like you do a whole 180. It's like you can't stop. No. It's the smells draw you in. I like to take them on airplanes and then not eat them, but just sit with them right there and then watch everybody walk by. It's just killer, right? <laughs> it changes your behavior. Yeah. You can't stop but walk into that store. But that's it. Like these, the, the real estate agents that'll make cookies or something. Mm-hmm. As they're showing a house. Absolutely. So let's, it feels like let's talk about how it changes behavior today. And research that shows that smells evoke not only motion, but also attraction. And it is something that's thought to really change behavior. So one thing that's just I just brought to my attention by um, a BYU professor, um, Katie Lindquist from the BYU Merritt, Merritt School of Management. She was a lead author in a piece called, in, well, it's a piece in Psychological Science, that people are unconsciously fairer and more generous when they're in clean-smelling environments. And um, what she did was she um, showed dramatic improvement in ethical behavior with mm. just a few spritzes of, of citrus-scented Windex. Really? Yeah. So... They're more ethical, they're more moral, they're cleaner. <laughs> Basically, I think the premise behind all this that she proved is is that when you're in a cleaner environment and you have the smells that evoke happy thoughts, happy memories, you're going to behave better. Wow. So this is what they did. I find this really fascinating. It's, it's implications for workplaces and retail stores and as well as the home hmm. and in se- security measures and in, in traditional surveillance just with cameras. Um, because not only smells, but just the way you way things make you feel. Did you hear about the research that was done in subways, underground subways, where they played classical music, you oh, know, uh, and crime just went down, you know, and they got rid of the graffiti. Yeah. It was clean, <laughs> and they played over the over the speakers classical music. Well, they didn't have to serve, do any surveillance anymore. Everyone That's was just walking great. around happy and help each other out. And they ought to use some of that Windex down there, and then it'd be <laughs> perfect. Um, so she said that um, companies often employ heavy handed interventions to regulate conduct, but they can be costly or oppressive. Um, this, uh, this is a very simple, unobtrusive way to promote ethical behavior. Hmm. Um, and it's, she said, and this is what I want to connect today as well, it's not just the workplace, but the home. She said, Linquist said, could be that getting our kids to clean up their rooms might help them clean up their acts too. That's cool. So what she did is she had participants engage in, engage in several tasks, the only difference being that some worked in unscented rooms while others worked in rooms freshly spritzed with the Windex, the citrus. Yeah. Because lemon is very – you know, laboratory research finds the olfaction – there's an olfaction and physiological connection. In other words, lemon significantly increases perception of your own health and well-being – Lavender and eucalyptus increases respiratory rate and alertness. Hmm. Rose oil reduces your blood pressure and um, a rapid development of um, of health. And that's what aromatherapy is all about. You know, the the business now is aromatherapy. Right. You smell this stuff, right? I've got some right here. How does this make you feel just smelling mm. this? Mm. <laughs> oh. Uh, <laughs> what sh- is that? It should increase your respiratory rate and your alertness. Oh, it did so that. If, if you ever start to doze during this show, just, yeah. just do a little whiff. It was lavender. lavender. Essential oils. But oh. essential oils is like big now. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So the, this is the first one. <laughs> the first, um, the citrus, the lemon, right? The first experiment evaluated fairness. 
So subjects received twelve dollars of real money that was allegedly given by an anonymous donor, and they had to split it up with their partner and divide it fairly. Subjects in clean-scented rooms returned a significantly higher amount of money, and on an average of five dollars and thirty-three cents, to their partner、hmm. over those in unscented rooms who only gave their partner two dollars and eighty-one cents. Really? So they ripped off their partner if they weren't in nice-smelling rooms. That's weird.、Mm-hmm. No, but, but I believe I, it's so subconscious, right? Your brain just. It might be thinking of you know spring cleaning at your mom's house growing up and happy memories and just well being overall well. But if I'm feeling good about myself and I have smells to evoke that, I'm going to do good to other people. Yeah, that's really、better. good. Yeah,、um, but these are some smells.、Um, the roasting coffee people love because of associative you、yeah. know、um, learning, and then the cookies, the bread, the the citrus smelling, and people working around air fresheners report higher self. Efficacy. They set higher goals for work, and they're more efficient. Wow!、Um, so, in the workplace, if you perhaps employers want to produce better workers, think about the smells in the in the in the environment, and in your homes, think about how you can get your kids to maybe behave better and do better. Yeah,、um, and be fair, more fair.、And、maybe instead of just thinking about the smells of cookies, like bring real cookies. Because <laughs> I can see a lot of people like. Yeah, turn on the cookie candles. We need these people producing, but just bring cookies.、Mm-hmm. Like you brought food. Yeah, I brought food.、Yeah. That's gonna help. I hope you're gonna leave it. I am. You didn't just bring it to tease just to、us. tease you. No, no. I found this is really interesting in the in a Las Vegas casino. This just cracked me up. The amount of money gambled in slot machines increased by forty five percent when the site was odorized with a pleasant smell. They got、really? people. They manipulated people to to、yeah. gamble more. They were more hopeful. I can do this. I just forty five percent more. That is weird. Something smells fishy. <laughs> I don't know what happened. The minute we had Salmon Day, all of the gambling stopped. <laughs> That's crazy. Well, it makes sense, right? Yeah, makes sense. And it's memory. It's tied to the memories. So if we want good memories. We have to have good smells. Yeah,、so、bad memories, bad smells. <laughs> yeah, and associative learning. And so, if you want more production, where you're not、um, becoming too heavy-handed on your kids and nagging, produce a better environment of cleanliness and smelling、um, that will that will、um, trigger their brain. Yeah, basically, what it's saying to feel more hopeful, more productive, more、um, ethical. That's. And that's easy. And lots. This is not just one researcher. It's this is the yeah, recent was, one. Three the or recent or one by BYU. But there's. I went back and looked, and there's a lot more that just really do、um, support that, and they all have the same results. Julie K. Nelson's her name. A spoonful of parenting is her website. A spoonful of parenting dot com, and apparently a spritz of Windex helps make the medicine、Single、go down. down. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well done, Julie. Thank you so much, folks. Go check out her books. Uh, there's really she's 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 prolific. She's doing a lot of writing, parenting with spiritual power, and keep it real and grab a plunger. Julie K. Nelson's her name. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. Your guide on the side. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Doctor Matt Townsend. You know, on today's show, I wanted to spend some time talking about connecting with your kids. 
And how do you enable technology without disabling your family? You know, you want to turn it on, but, you know, it's it's kind of like back in my day, we got one of them, you know, new microwaves, one of them little microwave cookers that when you turned it on, they, it sounded like a you know, nuclear explosion was taking place in your kitchen. So many things going on. I remember all the rules. Stay away. Don't lean in and look too close. It might radiate your brain. Technology, anytime we brought it into our lives, it's got to be carefully, you know, managed. We've got to figure out a way to let technology become a major part of our existence because it has so much upside. But we've got to do it in a way that we don't just disable our kids by making them vegetables that can't sit there and communicate and connect with others. Let me give you the first principle I believe all of us should be living when it comes to technology. We need to make sure we're getting better in life, not just busier. When I grew up, my mom used to just believe if I could just stay busy, life was going to be good. (laughs) Just stay busy. If I could keep my kids busy, you may have had your grandparents or other people when you were growing up, like, get busy. In fact, I saw it yesterday. Five of my kids were sitting in a room all on technology, had my son that came back from an LDS mission, fresh and new and just sitting there. And I'm thinking, ah, you guys, turn off your technology and get busy. It was the middle of summer. What are we supposed to be doing? In fact, they asked me, what should we do? Um, I don't know. Get a book. Do we pull out a book? Well, they, if they pulled out a book, my kids today would pull it out on their technology. So they're still going to frustrate me. We want to get better, not busy. We had a great uh, guest on our show just a few, um, just about a week, a week and a half ago, named Larry Gelwicks. He's a high school rugby coach, 419 wins, 10 losses in his rugby career over like 35 years. One of the greatest coaches probably in high school sports. And he would always ask a question at the end of his practice to all of his boys. Okay, the question was simply, were you changed or were you just entertained? When we get on our technology, we probably need to be teaching our children, you're not there to just continue to be entertained. You have to somehow be being changed. One of the great things you might want to try doing with your kids, if you want connectivity to be a part of their life, start a discussion with your children every day. Maybe this is something you do around the dinner table, and you're going to start asking them, what did you guys learn today? What did you learn? What, how were you changed today? And if they want to bring up technology, they can. I have a son that brings it up all the time in a discussion, or they'll show me a, a really great you know, video or a great website where I can go find some awesome stories. So much of what I share about being changed every day is coming from this show and preparing for this show or hearing your stories out there. So we've got to be pushing to our children that they're not here to be entertained. Entertainment is not the end-all be-all. Because when you think about sports and the movies and you think about uh, the music industry and you think about all of these and the video gaming industry, all of these different sources that are so, you know, fixated on on um, being spread and integrated into technology. Every single one of those are there for your entertainment. That doesn't mean you can't be changed by them, but you're not going to be changed unless you know that change is a big deal. So one of the things I would just get clear in my kids' heads is that change and positive growth is is essential. It's an essential part 
of it. And I think as a parent, we need to make sure we're not just trying to keep our kids busy. Be very careful teaching your kids busyness because they live in a world where technology can deliver a sense of busyness for the rest of their life. When we were young, there wasn't as much going on flat out. I couldn't get on my phone and instantly engage with just literally billions of websites that have something interesting to offer. Didn't have that. So getting busy for me meant grabbing a stick and running out in the yard and playing ball. That's busy. But that paradigm of just stay busy, watch out. Because our kids need to not just be busy, they need to be anxiously engaged in good stuff. They need to understand that if they're going to be on their phone, that's fine. But be doing something. Even in church, my kids will sit down. The minute they, the speaker starts, they pull out their phones, and they're all... Uh, their scriptures are on their phones, their games are on their phones. And it's almost like, no, they're like, Dad, it helps me listen when I have something to do. Okay, sure. Great. Then put the games away and let's just take notes on your phone. If that helps, if you need to be entering something into a phone to be able to listen well, fine, I guess. But then put the video game away and use other stuff, you know, cross-reference every scripture that's being used in church or whatever. Just use your technology for growth. It doesn't mean, too, you can't turn it off, but we've talked on the show a lot about the attention span of humans is dropping. (sighs) Scary, scary stuff. Okay, second basic rule, okay? First rule, again, get them better, not just busy. And watch out for that because I think that's a generational thing. But be careful, again, because technology is going to just make you feel like you're super busy. Because phones are coming, texts are coming in, you're constantly being interrupted. Busy, 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 busy. Um, Interesting uh, next rule for you. Think that your technology is more like a magnifying lens than a boogeyman. A lot of us from these older generations look down at our kids like, technology is the worst thing that's ever happened. It's the boogeyman that in the middle of the night is going to come out and slowly kill your children. It's not. It's a magnifying lens. Really, what I mean by that is technology's not there. It's not a new problem. It's, it's an old problem. That it's, it's actually a, it's a new issue, a new magnifying lens that's going to shine light and shine and intensify your old weaknesses. Technology is going to basically uncover your biggest weakness. We hear on the on t- about technology and social media and how uh, Facebook is driving so many people to have lower self-esteem. If I'm a betting man, Facebook's not the problem there. That person already has a, a self-esteem issue. And all that's happening with technology is it's a magnifying lens that is actually able to take advantage of your big weakness. If, for example, you have no self-discipline to turn off your technology, technology is not your problem. Your problem is self-discipline, and it's going to be the magnifying lens that's going to explode and magnify your weakness. Make sense? If you're easily distracted and you're a highly distracted person, technology is going to only distract you more. Your problem isn't technology. It's your distractibility. If you always pull your phone out in front of other family members and people are calling you selfish, you know, narcissistic or just so self-absorbed, your problem isn't your phone. Your problem is the fact that you're a selfish person 
and technology is going to take advantage of your weakness. So if we start to see technology as a magnifying lens for what we already are, it's not the boogeyman that's the end-all, be-all problem that everyone gets to run into for the rest of their lives. It's just going to magnify your weakness. And if your weakness is your self-esteem, be careful, because technology is going to then impact your self-esteem. If your weakness is control and self-discipline, careful, because technology is going to magnify that. If your weakness is selfishness, technology is going to magnify that. If your weakness is your inability to let thoughts go, technology is going to do nothing but drive you crazy until you, and you're not going to be able to sleep because you can't let your thoughts go. There's a great quote I love. You've heard me quote it on the show a few times. When are you going to stop swatting at the flies and go and patch the screen? Instead of pretending, and we all need to do this, instead of us all pretending like the technology is the biggest problem we've got on earth, we've got to get real about life and figure out that the fact is technology is not our problem. We are. And I, I suggest strongly that you focus on that, especially as you're teaching your kids Whatever you're afraid they're going to happen, if you're afraid they're going to be tempted and go look at stuff online, then you need to go strengthen up their character and help them learn to respond when something that they shouldn't be looking at that's not appropriate comes up on the computer screen. You're not going to be able to keep information away from kids anymore. You better be teaching your kids how to respond effectively when that information comes up. I would love to think that I could get you know, some filter program that would get rid of all of these problems, but it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. So there's not a filter issue here. I mean, you can go try, but what you might want to do is teach your kids what to do the minute it comes up, how to open a conversation with you, how to shut it down, how to bring you the phone, and how to let you get in and turn it off. That's the conversation I'd have, and I'd I'd learn to have conversations regularly about the weaknesses that you're afraid your kids might be having. If they're self-esteem, if they're kind of moral issues, and they're using the technology in, in ways that aren't healthy for them or aren't aligned to your values, don't make technology the boogeyman, folks, because the minute you do, you're not dealing with the real issue, right? Another one of my favorite points that I think is so powerful, and I teach this to your kids right off the bat... There's a thing called micro moments or micro moments of connection. Dr. Barbara Fredrickson in her book, Author of Love 2.0, talked about it, creating happiness and health in moments of connection. But she basically described that there's a power of micro connections. When we think that we're in love with somebody, the reality of love is it's not just this constant emotion that just drives us all day long. Love is something that is really made up of micro moments that we share with another person. So instead of thinking that love is one constant that runs all day, think of it as, fi- as 50 little moments where we connect in and feel loving moments throughout the day. They're micro moments is what she calls them, micro moments of connection. It's where we share carings or feelings with each other. Now, these moments come by smiles or expressions or concerns or notes or re- empathic responses, sharing a story, finding something funny and sharing that funny story. And in the end, they're finding out that these moments, many of them a day, are what improve your emotional resilience. So instead of thinking that love is one big concept that we just have, or morality is one just big concept that we do all day, think of it as 50 choices a day. 
And when you have 50 choices a day, this is where technology can help you because you have 50 opportunities a day to stay connected to the people you love. You could use your media as a way to create these connected moments, right? And connect in. So really, you could text the minute you have a thought, the minute you find a funny thing, send it to your friend and connect in and check out how people are doing. And maybe it's texting and maybe it's calling and use your technology in all of its various forms to create these micro moments with people that you care about. When you think about a birthday, share it. Put it on your Facebook page, celebrating grandma's birthday today. Call her on your phone. If grandma is active and involved in social media, you know, go to her Instagram page and say happy birthday and make a big deal out of it. There's five different ways you could connect to grandma just using technology. But grandma, that means you got to be using it. Your kids are going to use it. They say uh, that uh, children receive, I think it's 12,000 and send 12,000 text messages a month on average with a 99% open rate. Isn't that crazy? 99% open rate on our on text messages for kids. So you can go try to call them every day, but the reality is they're not going to get it, but they will get your technology. They will get your text messages 99% of the time. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, when it comes to romance, do you even have a clue what your partner sees as romantic? And because... It's really between you and your partner, right? Is romance talking? Is it going on a walk? Is romance getting dressed up in your sweats? Watching Netflix? You got to decide, right? But I find it ironic that 24 million books are sold of uh, Amish romance novels. So they're Christian-oriented, right? And so so it's not about the sex. It's not about all of the hot dialogue. It's about, you know, connecting. It's about understanding and listening. It's about romance that's not necessarily correlated to sex. And my concern is when once you're married, you might take your eye off the romance, you know, ball. You might take your eye off of it. And the minute you do, guess what? then I guess we, we're going to let the rest of the culture de- define for us what romance is. What matters is what does your spouse think is romantic? A kiss goodnight, is that romantic? Doing the dishes, my wife says, is the, it's the hottest thing I can do. So I just wear like a muscle tee and really tight clothes and then I go do the dishes. And she's like, whoa, you are the man. Usually she's like, just whoa, what are you wearing? Yeah, it's usually nighttime. See, I could have inferred that that was boring you. But no, this is boring, Ben, because, Ben, you got to learn about romance. For you, romance is, you know, Snickers bar. That's more of a love affair. That's a love affair. I mean, do you, do you as a student at BYU, do you think, oh, this date's going to be romantic? Well, I mean, if you were to go on a date, 
someday. Hypothetically. Hypothetically. If, I were to go on a date. if you went on a date, would you be thinking, how can I make this more romantic? Depends who I was with. Yes. Great answer. What would you do to light it up, to bring on the romance? That's a really good question. You want some ideas? Go for it. Um, candles. I always carry two candles in my back pocket. You never know when you'll need a candle. So, so just pop them out like when it feels right. Yeah, I'd only do it. Okay. If it's, I'd only use them if they're dark. If it's dark. Okay, and for a first date, do you think? Yeah. No. Okay. No. 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 First date, no. Second date, for sure. Uh, I like to pop out the candle and then you got to make sure it's dark. But the neat thing about that is that it, the light's just beautiful. It's beautiful light. So no matter what, you look better in the candlelight than you do in like the really bright light. Because it shows less of you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lighting, that helps. The big key, I'm going to shoot you right between the eyes. You got to... The key is when you know what she wants and she likes and you deliver on that, that's probably the most romantic thing you'll do. It's not like like you always talk about how you cross your eyes to look like you're romantic. It's not your eyes. It's not tilting your head. It's none of that. It's just you being attentive and present and in. Okay. And that, that's going to help me a lot. I, I usually – I usually try and cross cross my eyes no, a little bit more. No, don't cross your eyes. I promise. That's why you're losing them because they're like, this guy can't even keep his eyes straight. Okay. I, I thought that was romantic, so I'll, mm. I'll rethink that. That's, that's the look right before you lose consciousness, not romance. Oh, I thought that was just like the romance pulsing through my veins. No, no that's not okay. it. Not, not, not it at all. Anyway, that's your romance lesson for the day. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. Our goal is to help you love stronger. I think we accomplished it. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Millions of high schoolers have to wake up early to start school, and many parents can tell you about the struggles that they face getting their teens ready for school every day. Sleep deprivation in teenagers because of early school start has been a topic that has uh, been debated for nearly two decades now. The question school principals, superintendents, school boards around the nation are asking is whether high school should start later or keep making teens wake up early. Here with us to, today to talk about it is Dr. Kyla Wallstrom. She's a senior research fellow at the University of Minnesota, and she's been researching this topic for 20-plus years. Kyla, thank you so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure to be with you. What a big deal this is. I have six kids, Kyla, and <laughs> getting them up this morning, I woke up my, what, my 11-year-old and my 13-year-old, and... um it's getting harder and harder. They used to just come down right on time a few years ago, and now they're getting harder and harder. I don't even try to wake up my 17-year-old. Um, we just know that you know he'll, he'll wake up at the last second and somehow make it to school. What is the difference? What's going on? Why is it so hard to wake up a teenager? Well, you know, the uh, evidence that has been coming in from the medical research 
for the past, even probably since 1988 to 1990, has been really clear that teenagers, just teenagers, um, have a unique time in their brain development where their sleep-wake cycle has a profound shift. And basically the teen brain, once teenagers hit adolescence, um, they are unable basically to fall asleep about before 11 at night. And they're basically unable to wake up, at least be fully functioning, as you've indicated, until 8 in the morning. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And this is just a matter of human biology. They found this to be true around the world in all teenagers in all countries. So it isn't just a cultural thing, an American thing, or something of the sort, but it's something in human biology that puts teens to sleep at around 11 at night with melatonin secretion at that time, and they're unable to wake up until 8. So that's oh my why your heavens. kids are hard to wake up. <laughs> so it's a teenage thing, right? I guess yeah. elementary school kids, they, they don't suffer from the same ailment. That's correct. And I guess we probably yeah. shouldn't call it an ailment. It's a developmental no, right. condition. Uh, condition yeah. yeah. So, so, so I guess the brain is trying to get them to get more sleep during that time. Say that again? It, the, the, the brain is wired to get them melatonin kicking in 1030 to 11, so that'll put them to yeah. sleep. But really, it's trying to at least get them eight or nine, ten hours of sleep. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And the the brain scienti- uh, scientific community right now is really looking at, you know, the effects of sleep deprivation and the importance of, of um, adequate sleep, because that is a real um, indicator when there's sleep deprivation of really terrible things. And so... Um, this teenager uh, sleep phase shift is critical that most people don't know about. I mean, parents don't get that information when they are bringing their new baby home, that when their child hits uh, puberty at age 13, 14, or whatever, that all of a sudden they're going to have a child that they're unable to wake up um, until after 8 in the morning. Right. And it's it's so funny because it's also why they don't want to go to bed. So you mm-hmm. keep thinking, if you're so tired, go to bed. Yes. But they well, can't. And- Matt, I have interviewed hundreds and hundreds of teens um, in focus groups and individually, and they will tell me to a person that they can be just dog-tired, but they lay in bed and stare at the ceiling <laughs> until about 10.45 or 11, and right. then fall asleep. So tiredness is different than sleepiness. Well, and then I'll see my 17-year-old on the couch taking a nap right after school for two hours. Yes. And you're thinking, see, that's the problem. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but it really yeah. is... This is just their nature. They go to bed, serotonin kicks in. For the rest of us, as adults, I guess, when does serotonin kick in? You, um, I think you're meaning melatonin. Or me, sorry, mel- melatonin. Yeah, yeah, melatonin. Well, you see, our sleep-wake cycle as adults and even as young children um, are, number one, it's genetically predetermined. So you probably inherited that, your sleep-wake cycle from your parents as you have passed on to your kids. Mm. So that's number one. And then the, um, the the preferences for sleep are either early risers, like I have some friends, I can't believe it, they like to wake up at 4 in the morning. Yeah. Um, I, I, that's not me. Then um, they're, on the other end of the spectrum, there are people, adults, who really can't function that's before 10 in the morning just because that's their brain preference. And that's about 28% of the population. And about 53% of us are kind of in that middle uh, range of going to bed around 11, getting up at 7. Hmm. That's pretty pretty common. But yeah, that's it's, me. It's so, 
So you, you're you're, yeah. you're battling genetics. You're battling age differences. If you have mm-hmm. many kids, you could have some that you're trying to put to bed by nine, and the teenagers that can't really sleep till eleven, and then yeah. that means you don't sleep till midnight. Right. <laughs> How do yeah, we make it there? And then meanwhile, schools are scheduling these teenagers to be there by seven in the morning. Yeah, and that's what that's what we have been studying over the last twenty years, and it's been. Fascinating. My background is I was a school um, classroom teacher and then a principal mm. and um, a district administrator in special education for almost 20 years. Oh, so wow. I, yeah, so I'm fully grounded in the lives of, of schools and school um, culture, school administration, and so on. But then for the past 25 years, I've been doing this research. And, and it's very interesting because schools um, are very rooted in community norms and community patterns, and so it's very difficult for them to even consider making such a change um, to move the high schools to later, and more often than that means that the elementary age students are then brought in earlier if they have to reuse the buses and multiple right. bus runs. Mm-hmm. So, so some of this is, is community-based and just cultural history. Yeah. Some of it is um, the actual need of busing and resources. Exactly. And, you know, it's, that's part of the, the difficulty, but, but also then part of the benefit, too, because elementary children, I was an elementary teacher and then a principal there, you find that kids, as you maybe know your own, from your own children, they're awake and alert and ready, ready to go, even yeah. if parents aren't, aren't at 7, 15, 7.30. So um, the schools that have made this shift for the high schools and then have moved their elementary students to earlier times... The teachers, elementary teachers, that these kids are now much more alert, ready for huh. for their learning in the morning. Because little kids are usually kind of done and you know, kind of tired and wasted by about two thirty three in the afternoon. Yeah. And uh, yeah. so, if your yeah. elementary school in that regard goes to four, then that's really lost time as well. So, this flip of the putting the elementary kids first in the morning to school, and then the the secondary or high school kids to later, has been very successful once. Once the change gets fully implemented. In your article in the conversation, mm-hmm. why teen brains need later start times, I mean, this is more than even, you know, um, the effectiveness of educating these children. It's also accidents. It's what? It's yeah. their travel time. It's it's their yeah. health. You know, yes. And it's that's what's really concerning, I think, the general public. And that's why the study that I got funding for from the Centers for Disease Control, they see this teen sleep deprivation issue with early start as a matter of public health uh, concern. And that's because the teenagers that don't get enough sleep um, are um, extremely more likely to be depressed, Mm. to even have suicidal thoughts. And any teen that's getting chronically less than seven hours of sleep, or I'm sorry, less than eight hours of sleep, but but eight hours seems to be the tipping point, are much more likely to use drugs, cigarettes, and alcohol. Really? By far. Mm-hmm. So sleep deprivation is causing some of their these other kind of uh, what we used to call like antisocial behavior, like these... Uh, these these more dangerous behaviors. Absolutely. And as you mentioned a minute ago, um, the study included also an analysis of teen car crash rates. And when I did the study that specifically looked at Jackson Hole, Wyoming, um, and they made a shift from about 7.25 to 8.55, so it was an hour and 20-minute um, change. It was a big change. Their crash rate there after the, the later start was initiated dropped by 70%. Holy cow. 
Yeah. I mean, worth it. It is. I mean, it's saving lives, not only of the teens, but they crash into us if they fall asleep at the wheel. No, you know? right. So it's like everybody. <laughs> right. I mean, we are, we're already terrified to have them driving. And yeah, now, because <laughs> they probably are like driving under the influence of no sleep. That's not well, good. Well, and in, I'm glad you use that phrase because um, anybody, this is teenagers or adults, but anybody who's driving with less than four hours of sleep has the reaction time of being legally drunk Ugh. of 0.08 alcohol content. Their reaction time, their eye movements, you know, the, the ability to make a quick decision quickly with your car. Um, is similar to being drunk at um, with less than four hours of sleep. Unbelievable! And then mm-hmm. we want them to go to school and and supposedly learn. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we, I mean, we're really handicapping them. And some of it, I mean, it makes sense because I, I mean, I guess the rub is if we get them there earlier, then they can have their extracurricular activities and still get home in time for piano lessons and dinner. Mm-hmm. And you know, Matt, that's that's the real dilemma that I think we as an American society need to grapple with, and that is we've got kids, and it's wonderful, they have co-curricular activities with sports and and science club and piano lessons and and service learning projects and so on. I mean, this is all wonderful for their development, but we have kids that are so scheduled with all those activities, plus putting in school and homework Mm. on top of that, that somewhere the thing that gets cut is the sleep part, and that's the thing that really damages their health and well-being. Um, and so the discussion needs to be how many sports, how many activities do you really need to be in? Right. You know, those are the kinds of discussions that families really should be having. And how much, I mean, we're burning the candle at both ends, right? We're, mm-hmm. we are, we're killing the goose to get eggs out of it, yeah. supposedly, you know, helping them. And in the end, the goose is going to be dead. That's right. It's really a dangerous. It's a dangerous dance that we're doing with all these activities. Mm. And, and and the thing is, I think kids need to be educated um, about their own body and health and development. And so, when we have looked at curricula that teens have gotten about sleep and the brain development, number one, they're fascinated by brain development about their own brains because kids like to learn about their own bodies. But secondly, they then self-regulate, mm. and they'll say, you know what, I really. I need to get to bed. I really am not going to be good tomorrow if I don't do, you know, get to bed now. So the self-regulation piece is pretty important too that comes with knowledge that kids get. No, I love it. And I can it already is eliminating some arguments in my head um with my children like get to bed. Now I know why we have this crazy battle every night. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Kyla Wallstrom on why teen brains need later school start times. Amazing, amazing information she's bringing us. Again, Dr. Kyla is a senior research fellow at the University of Minnesota, has been researching this topic for over 25 years. Amazing insight. We'll take a break, come back, give you some more tools, some ideas, what else you can do as a parent and as a community member to uh, to adjust some of these things. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer and uh, lead healthier, happier lives. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the line with us is Dr. Kyla Wallstrom. She's a senior research fellow at the University of Minnesota 
And uh, her research work over the past 25 years has examined school and district leadership and the outcomes that result uh, from educational policy initiatives. She's also researched sleep and uh, your children, folks. Um, these teenagers, biologically, they're just flat out different. They Their melatonin tends to not kick in until about 1030, which means they're not usually going to go to bed till about 11, whereas uh, elementary school kids... They they're, theirs will kick in earlier. You can wake them up earlier. They tend to do different uh, differently than these uh, teenage kids. We appreciate you, Kyla, bringing this insight to us. I mean, really, it, it it almost probably explains a lot of the conflict parents have with their teenage kids. Yes, as a matter of fact, in the first years that we did this study, we polled parents, and ninety two percent of the parents said that after the later starting time, their kids were easier to live with, mm. 92%. And so it's pretty amazing how parents will, you know, indicate that that this has been happening. And part of the reason is when the brain, um, during sleep, sleep, I'm going to back up here, the brain is actually more active when we are asleep than when we're awake, mm. believe it or not. Okay? So given that as sort of the baseline of how much activity is going on in the brain, the brain sorts through all the memories during the day and the facts, the millions and bits of information. And what they have found is that during sleep, um, the, if you don't get adequate sleep, the negative aspects of any memory are retained longer and take longer to be categorized and, and sort of sorted and flushed out of the brain during sleep. So people... And, and included here, who get less sleep than they need or should be getting, they actually, it, it, they are, their mood is depressed and they are more volatile, mm. um, more likely just to kind of lash out and, and say things that are angry. It's because the, um, the brain doesn't have, hasn't had a chance to sort of sort out all of the um, affective pieces of a, of a piece of information. That, <laughs> that is a teenager. Yeah. They're just yeah. underslept and a little angry and a little irritable. And yeah. mm-hmm. and in the schools where we've done um, the data collection, I remember the first time I was walking into one of the schools that had made the change, and I was pulled aside by the school counselor and said, I've got to tell you, these kids are not coming in anymore or as frequently for uh, peer relationship problems, problems with their parents, um, mm. peer problems, uh, they were just saying these, these, these uh, students don't have the same level of issues. The principal said there is less um, uh, undercurrent and, uh, in the passing in the hallway. It's smoother passing time without kids kind of, you know, jabbing at each other and making dumb comments that kids will do during passing time. Or in the cafeteria, the cafeteria tone had improved and there was less... Um, disciplinary actions that happened in the cafeteria. Unbelievable. So, yeah. So so what's the ideal starting time? Like if you were recommending, what should parents go start pushing for? Well, you know, that's an interesting question because ultimately it's not so much about the starting time, which it does, but ultimately it's about what can you do to enable the teens to not have to wake up before 8 in the morning. Hmm. Okay, that's the key. And depending upon how long the bus ride is or the walking time or whatever it is, but most schools that have the greatest success start at 8.30 or later. And that's what the American Academy of Pediatrics came out of the policy statement a year ago based on the research that I had done, basically saying this is what is needed to have healthy teens 
is school should not be starting before 8.30. And I mean, honestly, because I have boys, a girl and five boys, I could, my son could shower at night. We could get a nice breakfast ready that he could just take it on the run and he could shower in 10 minutes, be dressed and out the door at 8, 10, 20 and be to school in five or 10 minutes. I yeah, mean, it could exactly. be. So you're just saying do what you can. If if you could create the policy and get the the community to change the, the, the policy and the times, that's great. Mm-hmm. If not, do whatever you can to get your kid to be able to sleep till eight. That's right. Interesting. That's that, in fact, that is sort of like the magic formula. I'm glad you said it that way because that's what it takes. It just takes a lot enabling kids to get that amount of sleep. The other thing, of course, that is that is interfering with sleep, and this is a recent phenomenon, and that's the cell phone uh, plague, oh, if you will, in yeah. the bedroom. In in the um, the, the uh, data that I collected on over nine thousand students, eighty seven percent of those kids kept a cell phone in the bedroom. Oh no! Wait, really? Eighty seven percent. Eighty seven percent. And see, the problem is, kids will say, "Well, I need it for my alarm." Well, get an alarm clock. No, I hear that all the time. Okay? Yeah, because the problem is when those the, if they have some friends that are texting them or doing something in the middle of the night, as much as a child feels like they're going to ignore it, you know, teens they're not right. going to ignore a text. And the, so the phone needs to be out of the yeah. bedroom. Yeah, we don't allow it up there, but That's good. people do, and. Um, <laughs> We don't even allow it there during the day, really. Like, it's mm-hmm. just be down here with your phone. It's like a computer. Just yeah. computers yeah. stay in public areas. In public areas. That's right. Hmm. Yeah. It's, so. uh, I mean, then not to mention the light uh, that comes and emits from the, the phone, which mm-hmm. also messes up with, messes up the melatonin. Yes, it's exactly a, right. And, and then uh, kids are already socially driven, right? And socially charged. Mm-hmm. And phones just are methods of magnifying social problems. <laughs> Yes, and um, you're right about the light because if they turn on their phone, even just even if they don't respond to the text, that blue light that comes out of um, mm. either an iPhone or a, an iPad type of device, smartphone, is going to upset the ke- the chemical balance in the brain for sleeping. So hmm. that gets to be a problem. Is um, so. Let's say we wanted to take on the the school and we wanted to kind of promote this and start mm-hmm. pushing it. What would you suggest is the best way to push it, our districts or our or our school system? Well, you know, the, the best route is to to gently suggest that there be um, a community meeting about this with research in hand. Because, honestly, just as you and I are talking now, most people don't understand this, and they think that the teens are just being teenagers and recalcitrant and obstreperous, yeah. all those good words, that really make them hard to live with, when, in fact, it's a matter of biology. So if you have in hand all the research and you sit down with a community group and say, this is what we know from the medical people, the educational people. Is this something we should be doing in our community? Hmm. And for all the community meetings that I've either spoken at or observed or participated with, that's been the key is the information. People get educated, and then they go, wow, this is something we should be thinking about. Well, nobody wants to destroy the lives of a teenager. No. I mean, and that's that's the fun of being a parent. But... um, is so do you have like a white paper do you have a data set that we that we could access and take i i'm i'm doing a television thing uh wednesday that i'm now going i've just found my new topic kyla <laughs> i'm going to be talking about this what good. what good. um good. what do you think where do we get the accurate data from your study well there is um my, the full report is um on the university of minnesota website for school start time study so okay. um I could send that actually to you, and you could either post it on your yeah. if you've got a um, 
you know, a, yeah. a posting for your show? We do. We have a Twitter page. So if you want to send it to me, sure. we'll, po- we'll post it up there and then um, we'll get it out to as many people as we can. That would be great. That's yeah. great. Kyla, we appreciate you. Thank you for your great work and keep it up. We're going to have to have you back. And pick your brain some more on what else we can do to take our kids to the next level in life. Just the next level of health and happiness. Forget getting another class to take. Powerful stuff, folks. We will take a break. Come back. We've got a lot of interesting stuff. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Um, here's the thing. We've all had to deal with it before. We've all suffered it. It's wrath at times. It can knock us out. It can leave us begging for it to stop. Yes, people, I am talking about the common cold. And uh, our very own producer, Caitlin Thomas, joins us over the phone this morning to talk more about the things we can do to fight the nasty common cold and uh, good morning, Caitlin. Welcome to the show. Good morning. So um, the funny thing about this, Caitlin put this together uh, recently, and then she came in today with the cold. I, yes. I just – I woke up on Sunday, and I could feel it. You could you just – The feeling, yeah. the creepy yeah. – the cold creeping up your uh-huh. throat, coming out your nose, and I knew I was done for. Did you? I knew it. Well, you, what's funny about it, Caitlin, is – um, you sound like you're miles away. You know, it feels like I'm miles away in my brain. Where are you? Where are you calling from? Well, I'm actually outside the studio. In case any of you listeners are wondering, Matt didn't want me to come in yeah. because he didn't want to get sick. Well, so. because you're sick, and We're so recording this from yeah. You know, so you are really about five feet away from me, but through bulletproof glass. You know, I was coming up with some things, ways to fight off and avoid the common cold. Yeah. The first one is. If you're sick, just quarantine yourself. Yeah, no, exactly. And if you don't or, quarantine yourself, let your team do it for you. Right. Like, let your boss do it for you. Yeah. Or if you know, like Matt, if, if you know someone that's sick, just run away. No, totally. If someone's got the yeah. sniffles, just get out. I Totally. I totally agree. And um, I is think it, that's the most effective way. And I really feel bad that you're out in the drafty part of the studio because you're out just where the commoners walk. Yeah, I'm really disinfecting all of the commoners out here in the hallway. Which so. I'm totally fine with. Um, not to be rude, but we can't have you in the studio because I've got – I'm going on a trip in four days. So and that really – And Matt gets sick when he goes on a trip. Yeah. We wouldn't want that. No, we wouldn't want that. So what are some other things we can do to avoid the common cold? Well, the I mean, not one, that you did this, but you right, should have done it. Yeah. The second one is drink a lot of water. Coca-Cola doesn't help much when fighting off the common cold. I disagree. Water. But, Agua. Okay, lots of water. Um, Stay hydrated. Chicken soup. <gasps> you know, you hear it's yeah. good for the soul. It's also great for the immune system when now, you got a cold. Is that really true, that. though? Or is it just that it hydrates you? Like, does it have an extra... What What is it that's so healing about chicken soup other than love of grandma? I don't know. Maybe it's mental, but everybody online, even the doctor said to try chicken soup. Okay, that's good. It warms you up. Mm. You can drink ginger honey tea. Really? So you you boil up your own like hard ginger, lemon, and honey, and you boil it and you drink it. It's supposed to be really good. It sounds well, delicious. Yeah, it's actually not bad. I've tried it. If you feel a sore throat coming on, immediately gargle some salt water. Okay, yeah, I do that. 
kills all the little buggers that are just chilling in the back of your throat. <laughs> this all would have been really good advice that you should have taken for yourself. Well, I'm following it now. Okay. That's good. You know what else works? Peppermint what? oil. Last night I was spraying my room. I was actually spraying peppermint oil around my room to uh, get rid of the mouse problem that uh, I have in my bedroom right oh, now. Okay. You have a mouse? I have a mouse in my room, and apparently peppermint oil gets rid of mice. But it also <laughs> cleared, as I was spraying it, it was clearing up my sinuses. So there you go. Um, off air, talk to me, because I'm a really good expert in getting rid of mice. I'm not sure what that means. I just have – we have a house near horse pastures and mice come in. So oh. I've got ways. Oh, we have ways to make them talk. <laughs> what else? Peppermint oil is a good way for the cold and a good way to get rid of mice. Do you just, I know there's a lot of essential oils yeah. that you can use. I like doTERRA, the breathe. You can put it right on your nose at night. Uh-huh. It's really helpful and it helps you sleep. I'm personally a fan of – you know, NyQuil. Yeah. Oh, I can't get through the winter without NyQuil. Get your, give yourself some sleep. That's what you need. You just need to rest. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, when I'm, you're in the middle of midterms like me, you don't, you know, sleeping all day isn't an option. You no, don't really get no. a day off. Right. No, I'm with you. So. I, um, what about, and this is something my mom used to do to me, and maybe you need it, so just call your mom, um, Vicks VapoRub. And you don't have to use that brand, yeah. but that mentholatum rub, and you rub it on your neck and your chest, and then my mom would always pin a towel around my neck so that it wouldn't get all over, and then I could just go to bed in a blissful yeah. haze. Hey, I've used the rub, the vapor yeah. rub, but there's also a humidifier that I put in my room at night. See, those are all, these are all good ways. Uh, maybe you could wash your hands more. Yeah, please wash your hands, people. Hand sanitizer is literally in almost every building right. I've ever seen now. That's right. Buy it, carry it with you, put it in your purse, put it in your backpack. But, but the real point you're saying is if you're sick, just stay out of the office. Yeah, I think coming yesterday if that makes you feel any better. Yeah, no, I, we appreciate that. And you came in today, and then if you notice, we wheeled you out of the office. So you're now outside of the office's we are still sealed, hermetically sealed in our own little compartment with our own ventilation, and you are outside. And we would just suggest now that the segment's over, you just go home. Yeah, well, I have to go to class, but I, am, I have a, a medical mask. I'm probably going to wear it around. Oh, that'll be great. May, may I sprinkle some words of wisdom on this topic? Please, Jeffrey. Mm-hmm. All of these that we've talked about are also great ways uh, – to get rid of clowns when you encounter clowns. Really? Lock yourself in. Peppermint oil. Oh, totally. Towel around your neck. Towel around your neck. Vicks VapoRub. Works for that, too. I think we're on to something. Maybe it's the clowns that are spreading the cold. Oh, wait, Matt, one more thing. Yeah. I know that she's listening, so I want to wish my mom a happy birthday. Happy birthday, (laughs) Mom. Thank you for having a wonderful daughter, even though she's sick. But she's going to help me feel better. Your mom is a great woman. Well, we appreciate it, Caitlin. Thanks. Take care of yourself. Get yourself some soup. Good stuff. I'm headed there right now. Okay. You're awesome. We'll take a break. That's hour number two. See, we're healing you from your sleep to your sicknesses. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer. We'll be right back.